I miss the scorching wind of Andalusia, how it pours sunlight onto your face, toying with eyelashes, flattening dry sand against cheeks and milling around hair. I miss the smell of the valley and that ripening softness of muscat fluff glistening in the afternoon breeze. And from up here, I could see the house where I grew up. I see white chapels tucked into grape orchards like pawns scattered on a chessboard. I could see patches of asphalt on El Juarnito Road, hailing from the old town through dappled rocks, then waning behind the horizon with erratic headlights of beat-up trucks cruising along. One of the pit stops along El Juarnito, where truck drivers stop to relieve themselves, marks the starting point to this wavy trail, all covered in blotches of spindly grass stalks and flaxen sand. The trail is barely noticeable at first. Truth is, no one even cares to notice it. Why would truckers taking a blitz leak care to check on a mucky trail leading to God knows where? But I do. This is how I got up here, to the top of this hill where I'm standing now. I've climbed all the way up here so I could finally end it all. All these years of vagrancy and fugue, exile and fear. This is where it's all going to come to an end. But for now, I'm enjoying the view of the valley unfolding below. I'm sipping the air of what could be my final memories. He will show up soon. He always does. Like a shadow, he's been following me right on my footsteps, always there behind me. And there he is. His limping figure appears behind the sharp bend off El Hornito. He looks up and he sees me, then stops for a moment to catch his breath and leans on his cane, as if assessing the remaining trajectory for this final stretch, then resumes his walk, or should I say, resumes his agonizing trudging. Years of endless chase took a toll on his body. No wonder. How long has he been chasing me? Ten? Twenty? Thirty years? He's slow. Methodically slow. But for once, I will not run. I will wait. Right here behind this rock. I will come face to face with him. Finally. And the sharp Swiss knife blade I'm holding in my hand will soon lance right through his neck bone. Yeah, that's what I'm going to do. This ends here at the dead end of the sandy trail atop the hill overlooking the valley with its white chapels and muscat orchards. It's funny after all these years. I still don't know the real name of my chaser. I've always called him what Master Borges called him. He who wanders. He who wanders. Listen to me. I will kill you. Borges. The Borges. I idled him when I was in college. Many did, but I was different. It was 1961. I was an average lazy learner at the university floating around from one semester to another with barely passable grades. I had very few friends and almost no interests, and one could say that I had an early form of an identity crisis. 
besides chugging anisado. My only other passion was literature. Latin American literature. Borges and Neruda were at the forefront. One can only imagine my excitement when I saw a pamphlet hanging on the wall of the literature faculty. Spaces were limited, but who cared? It was the man himself, Jorge Luis Borges, coming to give us a lecture followed by an open panel of questions. And, like a maniac, I rushed to the auditorium hours before the lecture. I was the first in line, and when the doors opened, I got the front row seat. The auditorium was packed with drooling chins of young self-proclaimed prodigies awaiting the arrival of the Great One. And there he was, the blind lord of literature, walking upright onto the stage with a cane and his loyal assistant right by his side. It was a standing ovation. He nodded and made a thank you, please be seated gesture. And then he began. The lecture was dedicated to Spanish writers. I cannot distinctly recall who it was. It truly made no difference at all. Somehow I managed to sit through his entire lecture, which lasted over three hours, and I remember nothing. He talked slowly and methodically, pouring honey into our ears like a guitar, with his absent eyesight affixed on the ceiling. And then it happened, something that caught me completely off guard. Before closing the day, Borges was about to take questions from the audience. I mean, of course, I raised my hand and so did about hundreds of other students. One of Borges' assistants whispered something into his ear, which made him smile. It's an honor for me to be in front of an audience of young people, but our time is not infinite, he said with blind eyes still pinned on the far corner of the hall. And for that reason, I will randomly pick questions from five of you. I've never won any prizes or lotteries in my life, and when I played poker or blackjack, I lost far more than I won. I knew my limitations, and that turned me into an average apathetic person, rarely trying to outdo oneself. And so, sitting still with little ambition, I got used to that. Until that moment, when I saw Borges pointing his finger in my direction, that came as nothing short of a shock. Me? Yes, young man, Senor Borges picked you. Step forward and introduce yourself, said his assistant. I did not know what to ask, and so I quietly mumbled my full name. Uh, my name is Fernandez Augustin Navarro. Borges shifted his gray shaded pupils in my direction, as if reacting to a sudden buzzing of a fruit fly. Fernandez Augustin Navarro. Navarro. Haven't I met you once before, young man? He asked. No, Senor Borges, I never had the honor. But you will. We will meet again, Senor Navarro. You and I will meet again, but for now, what is your question? The rest of that day was foggy. I don't even remember what question I asked. It must have been about him winning some sort of prize. But I'm not sure. And maybe not important. It wasn't important at all. 
The greatest writer in the history of mankind called me by name. And then that bizarre, unreal thing he said about us meeting again. When? Nine years later, in 1970, and there I was, a somewhat promising journalist in one of London's somewhat scandalous tabloid newspapers. Every week, my name was featured on the second page, alongside with celebrity chronicles and vile rumors. My paycheck was decent enough for a small studio flat by Manchester Square, and after years of having been pent up by directionless studies, you could say I became something more than an average, or at least, that's what I believed. That day, it was early October and arguably the best season in London, but that day began as usual. I ate my chic breakfast consisting of two scrambled eggs, ham, toast, and dark roast coffee at Barrymore's Diner, and was ready for a pleasant walk to the office. It was shortly after 8 a.m., and I was in no hurry. My route was the same as it was every day. Past the square, right turn on George Street, left turn on Thayer, another right on Marylebone. My thoughts that morning were all preoccupied with the piece I was working on, and so I was slowly making my way through the square when something caught my eye. Or rather, someone. At first, I did not pay much attention to him, no more than I did to anybody else who idled at the square that morning. Hippie rascals with soiled hair playing guitar on every corner was a common theme in those days, and London town was certainly no exception. So here was another one of those misunderstood love proclaimers sitting right behind the gated area of the square. Striped, worn-out jacket, heavy cap, sandals with clots of woolen socks sticking out. A common hippie bum, as anyone may have thought. And I thought so too, except this one had something that made my intestines churn. I didn't know what it was, but once I saw him, I felt the irresistible urge to instantly walk away and never see him again. The way he looked at me, that gloomy frown that made me think of a line from Oscar Wilde, that fellow's got to swing. There certainly was something outer-worldly about that fellow. His eyes, as if carved from a rock below his forehead, were mercilessly drilling thousands of tiny holes through me. I added pace. As I turned back one last time, I noticed him slowly walking towards me, past the gates of the square, onto the street, paying no attention to screeching tires of honking horns, walking right towards me. He's just a bum. No, he is not. Just another one of those unwashed tippies. No, no, you need to run. George Street was empty like in post-war bomb quarters. I could hear my brisk footsteps. Or was it the drubbing of my aorta against the chest? But he was catching up. Run. No, don't be silly. Yes, run. First, slowly, as if you're trying not to show your chaser that you're scared. No, not scared, but more like in a hurry. Why am I running? I could take him out with one punch. But you see, it wasn't really about that. 
It was my first experience of that feeling, which I can only describe as some sort of primordial sense of fear, panic, dread, unexplained sense of looming doom arching above you like a dark figure with a scythe. I ran, and I ran faster than my feet could move. As I turned the corner on Thayer, I paused and looked back, fearing to see him right behind. Scrambled eggs, toast, and dark coffee were about to make their way back up through my esophagus. And wiping the sweat off my palms onto my pants, I bent forward in a protective position and looked around. Empty windows of George Street were checking me out like a toddler witnessing parent in a cowardly act. Whoever that man was that incensed me into this uncontrollable panic, he was now gone. Shame on you, Fernandez Augustin, I repeated to myself on making futile attempts to enthrall palpitation to subside. Shame on you. I mumbled, repeating that word. Mumbling turned into whistling that song by magic lanterns. Shame, shame, I whistled, acting calm and self-composed. I sang without knowing words only to convert my mind to something else and I sang so others wouldn't notice me shaking. I climbed the stairs of my office building, three at a time. Third floor. The familiar smell of typewriter ink calmed me down. Safe haven. Shame on you, Fernandez Augustin Navarro. But even now, I question myself whether my journey to madness began on that day, or was it underway for many years? Madness that creeps in and recedes in tidal waves. Is that how it usually happens? All I know is that an hour later I was laughing at my little moment of weakness. Preposterous and rubbish, my thick Andalusian twang spoke to me. The idea of being fully checked out by a specialist did cross my mind, and I immediately thought of Dr. Patel in Camden Town. He'd given me a comfortable medical diagnosis like a panic attack and prescribed some white pills, I thought. But little did I know that the day had more surprises in store. The unnerving script development continued in a more eerie fashion when my boss marched to my desk with a pack of printed paper. No, Navarro, you're not going to see Dr. Patel in Camden Town who will make a judgment call on your insanity. But instead, you're going to do an article on Jorge Luis Borges' new book. He's making his presentation today at London Public Library and blah, blah, blah. I immediately forgot about the panic attack. The thrill of seeing Master Borges again, nine years later, was surreal. Moments later, I was sitting in a cab on my way to the London Public Library scribbling all possible questions I should be asking him. El Informe de Brody? Other books? Nah, forget it. I knew very well what I would ask. I paid the cab and galloped up the marble stairs leading to the hallway, where the master was about to hold his new book presentation. I elbowed myself through the crowd of journalists to occupy the coveted front row spot. Quick inventory check. Wallet. JSAC along with the omnipresent Swiss knife. 
Seconds ticked leisurely on my wristwatch. Four more minutes. Forget this morning sickness. Forget Dr. Patel. Collect yourself, Fernandez Augustin. Navarro. That was your last name, isn't it? Yes, yes, Senor Borges. But how do you... Nine years ago in Cordoba, I told you we would meet again. Do you remember? I nodded rapidly, completely forgetting that he couldn't see me. I'm so stupid. Perhaps, continued Borges, it would be more prudent for us to speak privately after the conference. I invite you to have coffee with me. You like Colombian coffee, Mr. Navarro? I shall see you precisely at six o'clock at the address that my assistant will provide. His blind eyes were still affixed to the top far corner of the hallway, far above all the congested sharp-penciled critics and arduous followers of his divine writing. The attention was now all on me, as revealed by hundreds of photo flashes from behind. I thought of all the explaining that I would have to do tomorrow. How does Borges know you? Are you friends? You were raised in Cordova. Are you his illegitimate son? But then, I did not know. The answers came later. Memory is a tricky animal. As I gaze over the valley and satiate my lungs with familiar smells, I cannot think of anything specific. Vague and elusive memories of my childhood home. And these orchards, these white chapels, and the old town itself. Nothing but an incomprehensible sensation somewhere down there, below the chest cage. I close my eyes and let the sun twirl around with tinted specks of mosaic light. I'm trying to focus without looking. Alas, nothing comes to mind. I've been robbed of my memory. You. I cast my eyes at the trail again. He's closing in. It's hard for him to walk upward, and yet I see that determination in his eyes. In his tight grip of that wobbly walking stick. In the way he periodically stops to catch his breath and eyeball the remaining distance. I'm not going anywhere. Five, ten more minutes... Come and take me, old man, if you can. I almost see his facial expression under the heavily pronounced frontal lobe. It's a grin. It's an expression that says, we shall see. Once I read an interview in the Morning Times. In it, Borges was portrayed as extremely humble and minimalistic. His house was depicted as a perfectly organized space with easy access to everything. Books on the shelves were organized by theme and title. Dictionaries and encyclopedias were grouped together on the same rack, so he could find them easily. In another article, dated 1966, I read that when Borges travels, and those travels were quite extensive, he carries a whole rack of books along, some of which may not even be read. When I entered his hotel room, that very book rack was the first thing that caught my eye. I stood perplexed at the multitude of titles, most unknown to me, when I heard the door swing wide open. <laughs>
And there he was, entering through the doorway with a leisurely swinging cane. Ah, Signor Navarro, how kind of you to visit this old man. I took a step toward him and produced some gibberish like, Pleasure's all mine. He half smiled and pointed his hand to the chair. I know you will quite enjoy the taste of Colombian dark roast. Borges sat down and leaned slightly backwards without releasing his cane. Do you know the biggest advantage of being blind? He asked and answered immediately. Blind don't need light, so my utility bills are way lower. He laughed at his own joke, only to be interrupted by his assistant carrying a tray of coffee poured into two small porcelain cups. Amazing how the very idea of drinking coffee instantly changes your mood before you even take your first sip. As I was readying to go on a pre-scripted monologue of expressing my gratitude and honor, Borges jumped right into the action. I'll get right into it, Senor Navarro. About you being here and about me remembering you. I know you have many questions and I'll attempt to answer some. Some, but not all. When you leave this hotel, there will still be some questions that you will have to find answers to. On your own. He gently picked his cup of coffee with a hand somewhat shaking, took an artistic sip. Yes, I had questions. In fact, so many that my brain membranes were buzzing in bewilderment and disbelief. Here I was, sitting in the room with one of the greatest writers, who happened to mysteriously know my name and... Have you by any chance read my book, The Book of Imaginary Beings? Asked Borges. I have, many times. I read it in Spanish when it came out. Very recently, I bought the English translation in some shabby bookstore off Oxford Circus. I read that book far too many times, but never in its entirety, mostly staring at a random page, just as Borges had intended it to be consumed by his readers. You see, Signor Navarro, the book was, and perhaps still is, a never-ending work in progress as human imagination has no boundaries. I have included what I had researched over ten years ago and then recently expanded and republished with more figments of collective human imagination. But the book is just merely a small subset. You see, in a way, the book, well, it writes itself. In some form, it's a, it's a labyrinth, a maze, an endless one, a living one, where every corridor and every room is never the same. What I had always wanted is the book to reflect the labyrinth in our collective subconsciousness, the force that drives our minds to craft. And for that reason, all the creatures in my book are strictly fictional, mythical. Uh, am I not boring you? Not at all. I understand, Signor Borges. He nodded and wiped a coffee grind off his nose. That book, as its title implies, is all about imaginary beings, tales, legends, folklore. But one thing that no one knows is that I had originally intended this book to include one more being, 
a being that goes by its Latin name, Quietus Est. It appeared and disappeared across many cultures, sometimes centuries apart. Very little is known of it, but what I found was indeed astonishing. First, this being is physically no different than any ordinary human, and you may say it is human in many ways. As I studied this entity, I became more and more agitated. I, I could not stop, and like a madman, I was trying to learn more and more, but very soon the excitement turned into another feeling, a feeling of fear. Fear of what, Senor Borges? Borges's eyesight shifted from the corner of the room straight on me, as if he could perfectly see me. Fear of what I had uncovered. That quietest Est is not a myth at all. He attempted to take another sip, but his hands started shaking, so he had to put the cup down, spilling some of it on the saucer and around the table. Well, pardon me, young man. Well, I'm trying to maintain composure, but... You have not tried the coffee, he said, wiping his mouth and forehead with the knitted handkerchief. I raised the small cup and took a sip, disregarding the aromatic fumes of Colombian beans drifting down my internal gorges. Pardon me, sir, but you're saying that the imaginary being called Quietus Est was not imaginary. Is that why you decided not to include him in your book of imaginary beings? Well, only in part. Fear came from the realization of what it would mean for mankind to know about his existence. You see, it's no secret that we are all well aware of our eventual demise. We all die. But imagine what would happen if we all stared right into the face of death every single day of our lives and knew the time that was left for us in this world. You see, death, not as a vague concept portrayed by middle-aged artists, not as a folklore tale of a grim reaper, but as a living entity that stalks you and walks around showing you a ticking clock counting down minutes and seconds, getting closer to you with every second, trying to grab your hand. Running from death is worse than death itself. He took a deep breath and closed his eyes. But I shall talk no more. Allow me to give you my scribbles from years ago. These are unedited in their raw format, so please, pardon the poor language. It's right over there, in the drawer. You'll find a folder with a yellow piece of paper. Read it out loud while my ripe old body attempts to catch a breath. I opened the drawer, as he instructed, and found a yellow piece of cursive handwriting carved in Spanish with some Latin phrases. The scribbles were short, less than a page long with marks and scratches, but most of this was very much decipherable. He must have written this himself half-blind, I thought. What caused him to do that and not dictate this to his assistant? I unfolded the paper and began reading. Quietus Est. It is said that one shall not know about its own ways and times of demise. The imminent passing is only felt by those who are either terminally ill, and even so, 
They don't possess the knowledge of when and where, or by death row inmates awaiting the exact day and time of their execution. Lack of such knowledge coerces us to exist. Sumerians believed in a certain god. The word god was scratched and replaced with demon of death embodied in human flesh and bones, which again was scratched and replaced with entity, whose sole role was to stalk its victims and inform them of how much time they have left to live. Per the ancient Book of the Dead, which was discovered as a set of clay tablets, typically buried in corpses. Only those that are luminous can see the god. Again crossed out twice, replaced with demon, then with entity. The luminous ones are thought to be either people with high spiritual powers, or vice versa, the cursed ones, condemned by priests. The reference briefly reappears in some Egyptian manuscripts, but in later writings is replaced by Anubis, or, in rare occurrences, by Horus. The writings again depict this unnatural being as an eternal human who never sleeps, but always wanders. What's strange is that neither Sumerians nor Egyptians ever gave the entity a discreet name. However, the latter rare findings during the Dark Ages referred to him as Quietus Est. The only depiction of Quietus Est is that of an ordinary human standing next to a sun clock, which was used to measure the time that the Chosen One had left to live. From time to time, Quietus S stalks the Chosen One, and, when cornered, moves hands of the clock forward to shorten the lifetime. If the Chosen One cannot escape, then his time eventually runs out. The very last reference was found in Enough, Mr. Navarro. You understand the idea. Now, on to the main question. Why are you here? He drew closer and a dull shadow from a lamp cut right through his elongated forehead. Quiet as S is an eternal wanderer who is always with us. The timekeeper who sits at the edge of the stage with a ticking watch on his wrist. The greatest gift given to mankind is its inability to see him. When I lost my sight, I thought blindness was a blessing in disguise, but no one does require eyes to see the wanderer. What eyes cannot see, ears can hear and skin can feel. I hear him. I feel him. You are here, Mr. Navarro, because you and I are the luminous ones. Borges paused and asked me with a trembling voice, Mr. Navarro, you saw him too, didn't you? Cold shivers that had been accumulating in my lower back rushed up my spinal cord in millions of explosions. Nausea formed a massive ball of air in my throat, and for a moment I struggled to breathe. Desperately trying to stop the thumping inside, I pushed words out, and I saw him today. How do you get used to the notion of being a passerby on this earth? Ordinary humans do not have to get used to that. We have that built-in protection layer, that safety cork in our brain membranes that separates the realization of being mortal from flooding down upon us. 
It allows us to breathe the air. It lets us exhibit this extraordinary yet sacred carelessness. The mental block that denies the laws of life on a primitive emotional level, even for the keenest scholars. The indecipherable tetragrammaton is shown to us in every step we take, in every cup of Colombian coffee we sip, in every word of wisdom that we collect from books. Every second we bypass the sinister tick-tock and hear the name of the god being whispered into our ears. And yet we, humans, turn around and whistle, shame, shame, deceiving our own self-cognizance. And that, as Signor Borges called it, is the true blessing. Those who possess the name of the divine being are doomed. Knowledge is madness. Knowledge is inexistence. Knowledge of death is worse than death. We sat in his hotel room until the early morning, the two luminous and doomed souls. Our casual exchange of words was amplified by the ticking of the clock, and it was dawn when I noticed Borges nodding in his sleep. His left hand was still resting on the cane, and his pupils were shuffling behind shut eyelids. Borges was dreaming, and so must have I. As I was exiting the foyer of the hotel, I hid behind the column and looked around the street. It was empty. Bleak light of street lamps drew strange crossbeams on pavements. Early October leaves were gyring in closed circles like witches around the fire. I was looking around, hoping not to see him. He wasn't there, but he was. I felt his presence not very far from me. Muscat orchards. They resonate inside like echoes of a guitar string heard from a deep alcove, but nothing particular comes to mind. I'm trying to shift focus from one object to another, but my nomad memory is lost in endless labyrinths. You took my memories away from me, didn't you? Wait, mortal. Wait five more minutes, and you will know the answer. I hear my brain. He's talking to me now. I could see how the long uphill walk is wearing him out. But what are pain and tiredness when you're crossing the finish line? As Borges warned me, do not ever come close to him. Do not look him straight in the eyes. He will always be near. His watch will be ticking. If he attempts to catch on, run. But he will forever follow. And in a way, he will be like a shadow of you. And I ran, and he wandered. I evaded, and he followed. He came too close to me in my hotel room on the second day after my long night in Borges's quarters. The fool in me still thought that escaping from him would be as easy as moving into a new flat, or checking into a hotel. And so I did just that. It was some shabby hotel minutes from my work where I decided to spend a few nights just to think things through. That evening, I remember every minute of it. It was my first face-to-face -face encounter with him. My room, B6, was on the basement level. 
as I stumbled through the dark hotel corridor, trying to find the key to my room. I felt his presence, but my ignorant foolishness dismissed all mental warnings and turned the keys. And as the door hinge squeaked, I took my first step into the hotel room. A street-level window was casting two thick yellow streaks of light on the floor carpet. I smelled dust and spiderwebs. He was in my room, sitting on the edge of the bed with a rope in his hand. A thin white blanket was covering his head like a shroud around a statue. I stood in a stupor like a paralyzed insect. An avalanche of sweat gushed from every pore of my body. With hand twisted behind my back, I was feverishly trying to twist the doorknob. He got up from the bed with a groan, and he took a step towards me. Hand too sweaty to turn the knob. Open it. Open. He grabbed my wrist. Open. Run. The stretch corridors of the hotel basement flashed like random shots of a silent movie. Run. B5. B2. B1. Run. Staircase. Up. Exit. Run. Your time is coming, Fernandez Augustin Navarro. A whisper crawled into my ears. Coming. Coming, hissed the wind. I ran until my legs gave in. I fell down somewhere in the outskirts of the town, passing out in an alley amidst rubbish until sunup. My madness has begun. In the days following my first face-to-face -face encounter with Quietus S, I moved out of my London flat. I had some savings, enough to tramp town to town, continent to continent, doing temp jobs here and there, sometimes sleeping on the streets. He was right behind me. Even if I didn't sleep for a month, I knew he would soon catch on. It would only be a matter of time for him to pop up somewhere on the opposite side of the street, in the next car over on the subway, or madly prying through shutters of windows in the house across. My attempts to speak to Borges were futile. How does the blind master live with this curse, I wondered? How does he manage to evade his sinister follower? I had questions, far more than I had anticipated, but Signor Borges was already on the other side of the globe. I wrote him letters. He never replied. I tried calling hotels where he stayed. Unavailable. The books that he wrote. I bought all of them in attempts to find hidden meanings. What if he had a secret message for me inside his writings? The Book of Sand, Dr. Brody's report. I even searched his earlier writings, analyzed every word. It was pointless and futile. That is until 1983. Shakespeare's memory, his final book as it turned out to be. I was somewhere in Eastern Europe when I bought the book. Immediately I began my scrupulous study, letter by letter, page by page, analyzing every space and every punctuation sign. And that's when I found it. The answer. The answer was the story itself. The story that did not require much study or decryption. All I had to do was read it. 
I knew I had come face to face with quietus S like Borges did, but not before having to go through the life of an exile. That's what Borges had intended me to do. Such was his final and only message to me embodied within his last story, a story written for the public, but intended for my eyes only. The story was that the protagonist receives memories of Shakespeare, memories that overwhelm him, overpowering his own. He forgets modern-day cars and engines, instead remembering faces and names from some distant past, memories he has never known, memories that belong to another man. In a way, he will be like a shadow of you, Borges told me that night. Slowly but surely, my shadow is becoming me, and that's why I can only vaguely remember you, my childhood home. Him or me, no more running. It ends here. It ends here. A few more minutes, I say to myself as I look at the watch. There he is. He's out of breath. Beaten, tired, and bent by the weight of his own arid body. One last push, old man, and we'll meet. I'm hiding behind the rock, his footsteps on gravel and sand. I could tell them from any other footsteps in the world. His breathing wheezing and crackling. I'm counting to five. He knows where I am, but he's too tired to take that last step. Let me take that step for you. And I'm staring at his face, wrinkled like leaves of an ancient scroll. Time's up, quietest dust, I'm telling him. He's not fighting back, and my Swiss blade finds a comfy spot below his Adam's apple. I'm going to finish him now. Popping sounds are coming out from his flabby throat. What are you trying to tell me, old man? Let me hear your last words. I'm easing the pressure to let him talk, but the sounds that come out, not words, but laughter. <laughs> you are confused, he said. You've got it all wrong. Let me, well, let me help you understand. I'm letting him sit up. He's coughing blood, and one wrong move, and he's dead. He wipes the blood off his lips and nods in understanding. All my life I'd followed you. He begins slowly. It's a miracle I've come this far and lived this long. Ever since I left Cordoba, I was a ticking time bomb. I was diagnosed as suicidal. Doctor after doctor, therapist, specialist, prescription, even yoga. I've tried them all. Some helped for a while and the disease subsided, but then trolled back with a new stronger wave. It's this disease that nests here. And he points to his head, forcing me to look for a way to end my own life. It all began in London, on that morning when I was sitting on the bench in the middle of that square, feeling the disease gnawing on my brain. My first attempt was in that hotel, room B6. I sat on the bed in that dark room for hours with a rope in my hand and a blanket over my head. Death opened that door and stood above me in the darkness of that room. 
and oh how I wanted my pain to end, but it was not meant to be. Not then, not there. I had to live on. And ever since that day, it was a cat and mouse game between us. I chased death, and death would always slip away. Until now. He pauses, rubbing his flabby neck, then points his finger down the valley and continues. I was born in that very house right there. I remember every moment of my childhood. My parents, my toys, my school. I remember playing hide-and-seek with my cousins in Muscat Gardens and dozing off to Sunday clergy in that white chapel. I remember eastern rugs being washed on the street and the smell of grapes. My name is Fernandez August Navarro. And you, you have no true name. But they call you Quietus Est, the one who wanders. Filaments of scorching infernos have been igniting all over me. The fire sets off inside my eyelids, spreading over to all facial pores and trickling down my body. Lies! Imbecile lies! I roar. Look at me, he says. I'm an old man. And you? Was you still young and strong as you always will be? You have not aged. Now think some more. What do you remember of your childhood? Shakespearean memories of random sounds and smells are all that you have gained from me. Master Borges knew who you were. He cracked you, and then he tricked you. He made you think you were me. That was his way of evading you, by not revealing you the whole truth until his final breath, final book, that final story. You are the one who wanders, and those memories you have, those are my memories. And now that I have told you who you really are, you must finally finish me. I've heard enough of his fibs. I'm throwing my knife away. I shall not require any blades to finish him. With hands clenched around his thin neck, I'm strangling him. I hear him squeal as the grip tightens. I feel the cracking of neck bones between my thumbs, and I see him gulping the air in warm convulsions. He looks peaceful. I sit on his chest and watch his last breath picked up by the wind, carried down the valley to the gardens, passing by the white chapel and the house where he grew up. The scorching wind of Analuthia was pouring sunlight onto his face, toying with eyelashes, pounding on cheeks. He must have missed the smell of the valley and the ripening softness of muscat fluff glistening in the air. I'm rewinding my wristwatch and walking downhill along the wavy trail, my thumb still sore from killing. I'm taking small steps sideways, and once I reach El Hornito Road, I will hop on the first bus, and from there I'll travel west, or north, 
the destination will never matter. Anywhere is where the roads take me. Me, the one who wanders 